Hey, welcome back to the Bad Bros Media Zoom show and podcast. It's been a while, but we're back. Today's special guest is a legendary singer, actor, songwriter, and producer, Billy Vera. As we go through memory lane with Billy, we discover his beginnings, influences, great stories, and more. Let's have a listen. This is Patrick with the Mad Bros Media Zoom Show and Podcast. I'm here with Brother David. Say hi, dude. And we also have a very, very exciting guest. He's singer, composer, producer, actor, voiceover actor, and Grammy Award winner, Mr. Billy Vera. How you doing today, Billy? I'm just fine and dandy. How about you guys? Oh, we're great. We're great. We're excited Good to see you. How, how are things in California? Well, nice, warm, beautiful California, sunny day, you know, can't complain. You know, the, I always said the greatest job in the world would be to be a weather girl in, in uh, Los Angeles. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's, either, it's either 72 or 73 degrees. It's, it's in the 80s up here in Washington. Yeah, no, we got, we got 80 today, too. Oh, nice, nice. So you had a couple of shows sold out last, last weekend at Vitello's. Tell us about that. Well, we had, yeah, it was our first show, um, it was our first show since the COVID, you know, since the mm -hmm. uh, last part of 2019, and uh, yeah, they sold out the first day the tickets went on sale, and, and the crowd was enthusiastic, and uh, our pal uh, Joe Pesci showed up, and, uh, and uh, who, uh, that was the only celebrity, but, you know, we, we allow him in. Unlike a lot of the celebrities, we don't really want them. I don't think you want to kick him out. <laughs> no, Joe's a good guy, you know. Uh, he's just a, a great guy, in fact. So I, I always love when he shows up at the show. Were, and, you uh, ner were you nervous performing after being away so long? No. No? It's like riding a bike, right? I've been doing this since I was in high school, you know. So cool. It's like falling off a log, man. Yeah. We were, we were sad to hear that uh, your friend Jerry Peterson had passed away of COVID. What was it like trying to do the, the show without him? Well, you know, in the past couple of years, he's had health issues anyway. Mm -hmm. So uh, he, he, doesn't always, he hasn't always showed up for the gigs when he wasn't able. And, um, and even then, uh, you know, he'd, he'd be sitting on a stool a lot of the time. So uh, it, it, he sort of eased us into it. And it was, but it was sad to let him go. He he stood next to me on stage for 41 years. Wow, you know, that's a long time. Did you know him before the Beaters? I did not. No, uh, when we started the Beaters, uh, it, it was the idea of Chuck Fiore, mm -hmm. who had been uh, who had played bass for me back in New York, and uh, he moved out here about two or three years before I did, 
And uh, so when I came uh, out to write songs for Warner Brothers Music Publishing, mm-hmm. uh, I ran into Chuck and he said, what are, you doing on the, what are you doing on the weekend? I said, well, Chucky, I don't know anybody. <laughs> you know, I just kind of watch television. He said, well, why don't you come down to, come down to Venice, man? I, I, I play in a, in a little bar with, with some real good musicians, guys that play on recording sessions and stuff like that. Come and sit in. So he said, maybe you'll meet some girls. <laughs> you know, so I went down there and uh, we all hit it off. And that's, that's really why we started the Beaters. Well, mm-hmm. Chucky knew all the... He knew all the musicians, and he, he, he's the one that brought uh, Jerry into it. But I'll tell, you, I'll tell you a funny story, which I told on stage the other night, sort of after dedicating the night to Jerry, I, I, I thought to myself, you know, people will, you don't want people to be sad all night. So I, I, I told the following story. When, when he got COVID, uh, he was in the hospital, and Jerry was not the kind uh, of guy that stays in the hospital very easily. So he tried to escape one night, <laughs> and and he was running down the street with with his big butt sticking out of the the gown, yeah. big naked butt sticking out of the gown, and two attendants uh, chasing after him up the street. Mm. So that's that's the image that uh, that. We, we kind of want to remember about our dear friend, Jerry. That's funny. If you knew him, I mean, he, he was a real showman, you know? Yeah. He, loved, he loved being on stage. He loved show business. And uh, so it's only natural that he would go out like a showman. Oh, well. He'll be deeply missed. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. So let's go back. to uh, you know, The guy that played that iconic... A saxophone solo on at this moment. Oh yeah, I I watched I watched something on YouTube and I saw him say he's I I love that piece but I can't I can't top a Billy so I have to take it down a notch. <laughs> oh, that's from our movie. Yeah, yeah, the, from the, uh, documentary. Yeah, yeah, Harlem to Hollywood. Yeah, it was really good. Available on Amazon Prime, by the way. Yeah. Rent it or buy it. <laughs> So let's go. Let's uh, go back back in the past. You, uh, your parents, your uh, dad was an announcer. Your your mom was a singer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, dad was. Uh, it's kind of kind of strange how like you tackled into both kind of because you ended up doing voiceover and then you also were like this great singer. Yeah, I stumbled into the voiceover part. Uh-huh. He was an announcer on NBC in New York for about thirty some years. Uh-huh. Uh, what they used to call a staff announcer. They had 17 of them. And those years before tape, you know, they had to have somebody there all the time. Mm-hmm. They'd hand him a bunch of scripts. You know, it's, I'd, I'd go down there sometimes, watch him in the booth. And, uh, and he, had to, he had to get it exactly right. There was no take two because it was yeah. live. And, um, and so he was, he was, you know, one of the best at, at that job. And then my mom started out as a soloist. Uh, she wanted to be a singing star. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I was real little, we lived in Cincinnati for about five years. And he had worked there, daddy worked there before the war. So they gave him his job back after, after he got out of the Air Force. And uh, she, she sang on uh, WLW, which was a number one station 
there. And mm. it was such a powerful signal that it could be heard as far north as Toronto and wow. as far south as Brazil and in 40 states. So subsequently, uh, a, a lot of big stars came out of WLW, uh, Doris Day, Rosemary Clooney, Andy Williams, the Mills Brothers, Fats Waller, I mean, Rod Serling, uh, later of the Twilight Zone. Oh, they all came off of uh, WLW. But, uh, you know, we, when we went to New York, you know, my mom tried to be a soloist, but by that time she was 30 years old, you know, and so she didn't quite make it as a soloist. So she learned how to sight read music and so she could become a background singer. And she wound up on the Perry Como show uh, oh. as one of the Ray Charles singers, the original Ray Charles, not the one we know. Mm. And uh, she sang on Como's records and, and uh, you know, she had a nice little career for herself doing that. Before you became a singer, you got inspired by Chuck Berry, but watching the documentary, I remember you saying you wanted to be a cab driver. Was that something you were interested in doing before you saw Chuck Berry? No, I was, that was when I was about seven years old, you know. <laughs> I thought the cabs were cool. Yeah. But I didn't really want to, you know, as, as I got a brain in my head, I didn't want to be a cab driver. Nothing wrong with cab driving. No. It's an honorable job. But uh, well, I just, I, yeah. once I saw Chuck Berry and, and Frankie Lyman and, mm -hmm. you know, Fats Domino and all those guys, I, I said, that's what I want to do. So I, I learned how to play a little bit of piano and guitar and drums and stuff and started singing. And there was a, a band in my high school called the Pharaohs. You know, this, this was at the beginning of the era or the end of the era, let's say, when you had to be a football hero. And suddenly a lot of young high schoolers wanted to be in rock and roll. And so these guys had a little band and their, their singer left to join the Navy. And so they heard about me and they said, you want to be in our band? I said, yeah, cool. Yeah, I'll do that. So we became, you know, we started playing all the local, you know, Catholic school dances and, and stuff like that. And, and we became pretty well known around the area. And, uh, and then I went, they, the guys were older than me, so they went off to college. And then another band asked me to join them. And we made a record. And, uh, and so that's when I dropped out of my first year of college. I said, I, I hated school. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I hated like it. Most teenagers. Oh, God, I hated it with a passion. You know, I, 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 but I had, I had one, I forget if he was an English professor or, or, or a history professor. It's just Fordham University, he, and he, where, which is mostly Jesuits teach you there, but this guy was, was not a priest. He was a, a, what they call a lay teacher. And, and the day I left, he took me aside and he gave me a, a stack of, of his old Elvis records uh, that he had when he was a kid. And he said, you know, he said, you're not going to, I told him I was going to take a leave of absence. <laughs> he said, you're not going to come back. He said, but you know what? You're a smart kid. And I, I want you to do one thing for me. I want you to never stop reading. He said, he said, what you do is you find an author you like, you read everything he wrote. 
And then you'd find another one and you read everything he or she wrote. And in that way, you'll educate yourself. He said, because you've already learned everything that college has to teach you, uh, which is how to find knowledge. And so in that way, you know, he, he saved me three more years of college. Mm. <laughs> you know? And, and I, I grew up to be, uh, you know, what, 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 what is the word they call it? Uh, the self-educated people, well, I self-educated guy. Mm. And reading a lot, I think that influences on uh, your songwriting better, right? Absolutely. The more, you're, the more reading you have, the more senses like, oh, I can this or this and that. And so that will come faster to the mind, correct? I learned about story, you know, beginning, mm -hmm. middle, and an end. Uh, and that's a good way to write songs. You know, a song, mm -hmm. a song should have a beginning, middle, and an end. Um, and, and also... Uh, reading books, sometimes I, I, it would give me ideas for songs, too, you know. So, yeah, it, it was all very helpful in, in, in how to put words together so that it didn't sound stupid. Yeah. Now, you said earlier that uh, you're talking about, like, you saw Chuck Berry and you saw Fast Domino, and it was like an influence for you to start, um, you know, start music. Didn't you end up writing, you wrote a song for Fast Domino, too? Yeah, um, my first song that, that got sold, actually it was the first song I ever bought, brought to a music publisher, uh, got recorded by Ricky Nelson, became a, a minor hit record. So from, in those days, the music business was a cottage industry. And every, if, if you had a record on the charts, even a new kid like me, uh, everybody on Broadway knew who you were. Uh, or knew your name, and so you 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 were able to knock on doors and they'd see you. So I ended up with a, a, a job uh, writing songs for a publishing company, and they put me together with a fellow named Chip Taylor, who um, uh, incidentally uh, went to the same high school I went to. He was about four years older than me, and Chip and you know Chip was a great writer. He wrote Wild Thing and Angel of the Morning and. A lot of great songs. So they put us together. And the first song he and I wrote together was called Make Me Belong to You, which became a hit for Barbara Lewis. And it got recorded in, by all over the world, by different languages and different, you know, different people, and including one of my heroes, Fats Domino, uh, which was kind of after his run of hits. But uh, it was still a huge, huge thrill, you know, and the fat man recording my little words and music. And years later, I got to meet him. Hmm. We were on a rock and an oldie show together. I had the house band and he was the headliner of the show. So someone introduced me to him and they said, this is Billy Barra. Uh, you recorded one of his songs. He said, oh yeah, which one? They said, make me belong to you. He says, and he started singing it. Mm. And he said, you know, I have five children, and that's their favorite song of mine. So I thought he was just, you know, blowing smoke, you know, to make me feel good. Mm. But a few years later, when I came to California, I was befriended by a man named Paul Gayton, who uh, was a, one of the first R&B star to come out of New Orleans. And he grew up around fats, and they were good friends. And, he, and Paul said, he said, you know, no, no, no. He said, uh, 
He said, if Fats said it, he meant it. He said, because Fats is not sophisticated enough to bullshit. Mm. <laughs> so that, that made me feel good. So out of all the songs you wrote, aside from at this moment, which would you think, uh, which is probably the one that made the most money for you? Well, definitely at this moment, because uh, aside from my version of it, I had a lot of covers, uh, you know, Tom Jones, Frida Payne, uh, Rita Coolidge, uh, even Michael Buble sold about 10 and a half million records on his album. And actually, Buble recorded it in a studio version and uh, a live version. So... You know, he, yeah, I made a lot of money off that song. Did you have a, a, a favorite that uh, that did your cover? I don't know if you happen to see uh, Jimmy Fallon actually did a cover of your of your song, too. Oh, yeah, he nailed it. Of, of all the people, believe it or not, I, I think he really nailed nailed the song. Because uh, <laughs> most people, when they sing it, they, they tend to, you know, these karaoke singers, they tend to over-sing it. You know, they, they, because it's an emotional lyric. And so they think they got to get all big and you know, like that. Yeah. And, and of course, you know, my, my advice to anybody trying to sing that song is, you know, just be conversational with it. Uh, let the song do the work for you. Uh, you know, you don't have to work that hard. You know, Rita did a pretty good job of it. I thought um, she sang it very simply. Uh, Marilyn McCoo from, uh, you know, The Fifth Dimension, mm. she always sang it in her act, and she did a nice job of it. I don't, th I don't think she ever recorded it, though, unfortunately. I wonder if she sang it on Solid Gold. I know she would always sing people's songs on Solid Gold. Because she's yeah. supposed to act, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised. Um, uh, also, the old uh, 50s singer, uh, Kay Starr, who you mm. may or may not remember, wonderful singer she she did it in her act and uh, i liked how she sang and peggy lee uh, peggy lee's granddaughter told me that that uh during that period peggy asked her she said well you're a young kid you know i, I can't find any contemporary songs that i want to sing he said is, is there anything that's good and she's and the granddaughter said yes yeah, sing this song at this moment so peggy started singing it in her act unfortunately I never got to hear her do it. I, I bet she would have done a good job of it. Well, I, I heard a recent uh, recording of you doing that song again in the studio. And I have to say, it's just as good as the original. It might, might even be better because your voice seems to sound stronger Wow! in the studio version than the live version. My favorite version of mine, mm -hmm. if, you, if you ever on YouTube, um, mm -hmm. Just type in Billy Vera Wiltern Theater. Uh -huh. And uh, that was from a, a salute to songwriters that, that they, they brought me on there to do it. And uh, I, I think, in my opinion, that's my best, my best version of it. Now, the, the video, is that, that the Roxio, the one that they always show all the time? Mm -hmm. Is there a full concert of that? Because I've always liked to see a full con. I think that you said in the documentary you shot like a bunch of footage over there for a couple nights. Yeah, yeah, we, we, uh, <laughs> we, we did, uh, we put out a double, uh, a double DVD set. Mm -hmm. uh, and I got a, I got a couple of hundred of them sitting in boxes right over here in the corner. Uh -huh. 
you know, with of that uh, CD one is is you know as much of the Roxy show that would fit on one DVD, mm-hmm. and then disc two is from a year later, 1982, that we recorded um, at Lionsgate, uh, which they set it up the studio to look like a nightclub, and so it seems like a nightclub, and that's a that's a good one too. If you want to see what Billy and the Beaters were like in 1981 and 1982. Because I heard it, it was like always like around the corner sold out. Roxy almost couldn't couldn't fit anybody in there because it was so packed. Yeah, the Roxy and the and before that the Troubadour. Troubadour, yeah. Yeah, the guy the guy that ran Monday nights there, Matt Kramer was his name. Uh, you know, he, he usually put on like folky kind of acts. You know. Everybody doing 20 minutes a piece, and uh, you know he, he heard somebody say my name in this restaurant one day, one night, and uh, and he came over to me and he said, uh, he said, excuse me, did she say Billy Vera? I said, yeah. And she said, he said, well, my name's Matt Kramer. I do Monday nights at the Troubadour. Uh, I hear you have the best band in town. I said, well, I don't know. I haven't heard all the bands in town. There might be a few of them better, better. He said, well. I'd love to have you do Monday night at the Troubadour. I said, well, you know, I said, I can't bring 10 guys on stage and drag everybody in there for, to do 20 minutes. I said, I, you know, it's too much. He said, what, and he thought about it for a minute. He said, what if I, what if I um, let you go on at midnight and you can play as long as you want? And uh, so we thought about it. I said, well, you know, midnight on a Monday night, who's going to be there? You know, who's going to show up? So the first week, you know, it was a few people there. Second week, third week, it was, as you say, lines around the block for the next year, every Monday night at midnight. We were the, we were the hottest thing in town there. But no wow. record companies would, uh, would take out their wallets, you know, <laughs> and want to sign us. Because at that time, there was a band called The Knack, if you mm-hmm. remember. So everybody was trying to sign another Knack. In other words, Two guitars, bass, and drums. You know, they sing My Sharona, didn't they? That was My it. Sharona. Yeah. My Sharona, that's what it was. My Sharona, whatever. Yeah. It you know, a good record. I'm a good, I'm a, uh, we're from the 80s, so we're like, I mean, our parents were from the 60s and 70s, and we heard all their music, but yeah. Yeah, we're both 80s bus because we both grew up in the 80s. Well, there you go. That's yeah. My Sharona. Well, that was 1970, late 70s. Mm-hmm. But so, you know, they weren't interested in, in a band with four horns, you know. No. playing R&B but you know after they signed those kind of acts and they all flopped because because that's what always happens the copycat bands all fail mm. and they, that then and only then do they start looking for something different and we were sure different if nothing else mm. and uh, so we got three offers in one week and we decided to go with this Japanese company because we figured we'd get more attention from them than from a big company. And we were right. And uh, we, we had a, a hit record called uh, I Can Take Care of Myself, uh, which went to about the middle of the charts, you know. And, and, then, and then they put out At This Moment as the follow-up. They, they brought us to Tokyo. We did the Tokyo Music Festival and we won the gold prize there singing At This Moment, you know. But the company was, wasn't being run properly, they felt, the Japanese felt, and so they pulled the plug. Mm-hmm. And so right in the middle of, at this moment, 
got to number 79 and that, there was no more record company. So then we were, we were without a record deal for the next five years. And I was eking out a living, you know, on my old royalties and my songs and, you know, doing the occasional acting gig, uh, you know, playing Thug of the Week or whatever they hire New York guys to do. And, uh, and then finally, one day, uh, phone rings, the golden phone call, you know, guy says, my name is Michael Whitehorn. And uh, I produce and write a show called Family Ties. And we were at the club the other night and we heard you do a song that we thought would be perfect for this episode that we have coming up. And uh, so we, we, he couldn't remember the title. Nobody ever remembers the title of at this moment. Mm -hmm. It's a lousy title, I guess. And uh, so we finally figured out that that's what the song was. And uh, so I said, well, call Warner Brothers and they'll, they'll give you a license to use the song. So they did and I got a bag full of mail. Now I had gotten songs on TV shows prior to that, but never got mail, you know. They usually play them in the background and nobody hears them anyway. But this time it was, you know, when Michael J. Fox and the girl are dancing together and it's romantic. And so I said, wow, I got mail. I said, people, maybe people like this song, you know? Maybe, maybe I can get somebody to let me record it again and uh, at, at a, another record company. Well, I, I went around and made some phone calls and nobody was interested, and nobody. And finally, I'm having lunch one day with a friend of mine, Richard Foos, who owned a record company called Rhino Records, and they put out oldies. And uh, so we, we have a periodic lunch where we argue about, you know, mundane things, uh, you know, whose version of Mustang Sally is the best, you know, stupid stuff like that. And, uh, and I said, Richard, how many records do you need to sell to break even? He said, well, we, we have low overhead here at the company and we can break even on a couple of thousand. I said, what if I promise, if I guarantee you uh, 2,000 sales, I can sell them in the club if I need to on the, at this moment. He put it out. I, I had told him the story about family ties. So he said, yeah, go ahead, put, put together an album, you know, of, of your best stuff for the record company. And so I did. And by the time they got it out, we had missed the reruns. So the, the next season, they do an episode where the girl breaks up with Michael J. Fox, and it's so sad, mm -hmm. and they use the song again. Well, this time, the story of the episode, Boy Loses Girl, is the same as the story of the song, Boy Loses Girl. And somehow it, it resonated with uh, America, and NBC told us they got more phone calls and letters than they ever got in the history of the network for any other song. And wow. people started calling radio stations, uh, you know, record stores. And it was that, that rarity in the music business, which was a grassroots record, you know? I mean, Rhino knew nothing about how to promote records or, or payola or any of that. So <laughs> it's it sort of the record just happened on its own, thanks to Family Ties. Yeah. And next thing you know, we're leaping over Madonna, we're leaping over Bon Jovi, we're, Next thing you know, we're number one, 42 years old, uh, got a number one record. 
and um, it was it was changed my life, you know. No, it's a time timeless song. It's so classic. But you know, I never I always wanted to know what was the backstory behind the song. Well, as you know, there's a story behind every song. Yeah. Uh, but as a professional songwriter, meaning a guy that worked for a publishing company and you know writing songs, you know there are a lot of ways you write songs. Sometimes it's on an assignment. You know, they'll say write a song for this artist or that artist, mm-hmm. and so you craft something for that artist based on uh, their vocal range. You know, uh, how high or low they can sing, or or the kind of subject matter they like to sing about. Uh, but in this case, I had just started dating. I was still living in New York at my mother's house, like some loser musician. Uh, and I, I started dating this 20-year-old college girl. I was 33 at the time. Beautiful girl. Beautiful girl. And she she starts telling me about breaking up with her previous boyfriend and how he suffered over her. And, oh, he was suicidal. And so I, 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 I was sort of inspired by the way she told the story. And uh, I, I wrote the song from what I perceived as his point of view, mm. but I couldn't finish it. I got, I got to about, you know, two thirds of the way through the song and I, I just couldn't figure out how to end it. And then a year later when she broke up with me, then oh. I knew that last verse came to me like, like that. You know? I watched uh, a lot of your uh, perform, like your performances from Carson, and like your voice is just like so powerful. Like, did you? I was just wondering if you had any um, kind of like vocal training uh, growing up, or like some training from your mom, or or did you just uh, just born with it, born with the magic? Well, you know, everybody in my family earned their living with their voice. You know, my mom and my dad, and even later, my sister. Um, but my mother did uh, was kind enough to, to send me to her vocal coach for a few lessons on how to breathe, you know, and how to sing from your, your stomach and, you know, certain things that, that helped. Uh, but generally, it was, just, it was just me, you know. How did you get the role of Pinky? Well, um, let's see if I'm trying to remember that. One night, uh, the director mm-hmm. and uh, his assistant and a couple, about a couple of people came into this club on Sunset Boulevard called The Central, mm-hmm. uh, where we were playing. Uh, and and they, pulled, they, they asked me to come over to the table when we took our break. And the director said, he said, I love the way you improvise. Up, up on stage, you know, because I don't just sing. I, I, I talk a lot between songs and, and, and stuff like that. Some, some funny stuff or just some all kinds of talking. He said, I like the way you improvise. He said, uh, do, you, do you do any acting? I said, yeah, I, I, uh, you know, I've been in a couple of TV shows and, you know, sitcom. I played a cop here. I played a, a, a school teacher there. You know, I played a gangster there you know so he told me kind of the story of of the of the movie he said uh, i'd like you to come in and uh, audition so i came in 
And the part I auditioned for was the part that Clancy Brown eventually got. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that's, that's kind of the way he saw me at first. Oh, yeah. And, uh, but I guess, you know, Clancy was, was more right for the role. Uh, so then they said, uh, well, well, you know, why don't you be this guy, Pinky? I said, sure, anything. That was my first movie that I ever did. Uh, and uh, boom, that was it, you know. And then he said, he said, you know, that guy, that guy was on stage, stands next to you on stage, that big guy with the big head. That was Jerry Peterson. Mm-hmm. He said, you know, you know, he said, this is a kind of a weird movie, you know. He, he, he's kind of weird looking, you know. Maybe put him in there, you know, in a non-speaking role. Yeah. It's just, just, you see him here and there, you know. He's not really weirdly. He just got like really big curly hair. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Make him stand out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and it was, I think it was a real brilliant thing to put him in there, you know. So, Especially course, in the 80s. Yeah. It's, it definitely is like an 80s style right there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. One of a kind looking guy. So that was, that was a lot of fun doing that movie because, uh, the director let me, uh, Rick Richter is his name. Mm-hmm. He let me, he, he let me, he turned me loose in there sometimes. You know, I, I, I have to say the words, of course. Yeah. But, but he said, just, he said, just, I, I love your improvisational stuff. He said, just tell me where you're going to stand mm-hmm. so I can have the camera follow you. Know, know where you're going to go. I said, and otherwise, you know, do whatever, do whatever comes to you. And I, I mean, that gave me so much freedom, you know. They, usually they want everything to be precise and exact, you know, stand right there, say this like that. You know? But uh, so that was an awful lot of fun. Did you give any tips to Peter about being the lead singer? No, no. Uh, he, he just did it all on his own. He's not the kind of guy that, uh, yeah. that takes kindly to tips. Oh, you know? okay. But what we did do, he did, he, we did. Uh, help him learn how to look like he could play a guitar yeah uh, he actually is a good he, he is a good musician he plays something a little mini trumpet oh yeah trumpet. Yeah, yeah i remember yeah and he he plays it well but he, he had never played guitar before so i i brought my guitar player uh-huh. and i over to his house uh and you know show him how to to look like he was he could play it you know and I think you were playing bass. You were that's that was something you unusual. Usually you're playing piano or you're playing guitar. Yeah, I on stage I, I always played guitar. Yeah, was it, but, it was uh, bass, right? Yeah, I, you know. There were three other people that had the guitar, including Bonsai. But there was a cool thing you, you guys did. You did like a up and down with the guitarist. It was kind of cool. Well, that's kind of from Let's the theater. we we do choreography. Yeah. Yeah, you know, too. So we figured we'd throw that in. That was our idea to do that. Yeah, that was that was a cool scene. Yeah, and then there were some scenes that, you know, they had to cut a half hour out of the movie. Oh yeah, it was a lot longer the original cut. Mm-hmm. But the studio thought that the movie was going to be a huge hit, so they wanted to make it shorter so it could fit five times a day in the theater instead of four. As it turns out, the movie flopped. But uh, except on on video. Video was number one for six months, uh, but but it didn't it didn't do well in the theater. I think people I think cutting all that space out mm-hmm. um, made 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 the jokes go by too fast. Yeah, people you know jokes need time to breathe. 
in between. And uh, so the, the, the cutting, like there was one scene at the end that I really loved doing. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that important a scene, so that was part of what got cut out. But at the end where we're, we're, we're beating up the bad guys mm-hmm. and, uh, and some, they had stuntmen playing some of the bad guys. So, you know, you could, you could hit them and everything and you wouldn't hurt them. You know? yeah. And uh, uh, I, I said to, to Rick, the director, I said, I got an idea. I said, you know, the whole, in the whole movie, we don't know why I'm, my name is Pinky. Mm-hmm. I said, I said, what if, you know, going back to Pinky's childhood, uh, I lived with my grandmother and I loved my grandmother very much. And, and she's the one that named me Pinky. So while I'm beating up the bad guys, mm-hmm. you know, they, they, you know, they, they get their nourishment from sugar. Yeah. <laughs> if you remember. Yeah. I said, so I'm searching them for weapons and I find in the guy's pocket, this great big pink snow cone. Oh. And I hold it in my hand like this. Mm-hmm. And I think of my grandmother. Oh. And, I, and she's dead now and I loved her so much and I start to cry. He said, can you cry in one take? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, you wanna waste time. So yeah. I did it, you know. Uh-huh. <laughs> I got these tears running down my face. And I'm holding this pink snow cone in my oh, hand. It was hilarious. You know, I mean, but, you know, it had to go, you know, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, obviously, the cl- uh, show's at the end. I mean, you, people walking, all, everybody all at the end, and you've got that blazer with the pink shirt and the pink tie and the pink shoes. I was like, oh, wow. I mean, that, that's, that's like totally 80s right there. And it, it's... And awesome. Do, a lot of people don't don't. A lot of people can't pull off peak, but in that scene, even with that hat, it's like wow. It's like you look sharp. Little, I did my little twirl there. I know, yeah. Now you know what that is. That comes from that comes from my my early years in show business. You know, uh-huh. when I when I first started out, I had some hit records in the '60s uh-huh. with a lady named Judy Clay, and we were the first interracial boy girl duet singing love songs nobody had done that before we played the apollo theater in in harlem you know uh, which is the epitome the pinnacle of black show business and here i am this skinny little white boy on the apollo theater stage when at the same time this was a month after martin luther king got murdered mm-hmm. and across the river in newark new jersey there's riots going on so the the, the theater management was scared that that Judy and I might cause a riot, but we went over great. And we became, in fact, we went over so well that they they changed the order of the show and he put us on right before the star. He said, because ain't nobody going to follow you two. And and so what I learned from the old timers at the Apollo and and the old black theaters is how to compete, you Mm -hmm. know, Uh, because, you know, show business is competitive. Uh, it, it's not not always vicious com- competitiveness. You know, it's it's you know entertainers. We love each other, but we still mm-hmm. want to say, "Oh yeah, follow this." You know, there's a lot yeah. of that. And so that little twirl I did in the in the promo at the end of the movie mm-hmm. that was my way of upstaging everybody. Yeah. Else. <laughs> you know. <laughs> 
<laughs> shamelessly. But but you know that's 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 the tricks you learn when you yeah. when you're in early and that old fashioned kind of show business how to how to grab the attention for yourself. Did you end up uh, keeping any of the the props or any of the uh, the wardrobe from the movie? No, 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 no. All we got was a lot of nice, cool pictures, though. You know, they, they had a photographer, a still photographer, there on set all the time, and, and so. Uh, Got a lot, a lot of those kind of memories. No. Well, tell us uh, about uh, working on Blind Date with Bruce Willis and Kim Basinger, Lara Kett. That that club scene. Oh, that was this club was... scene and those songs. Those are like the those are three of the best songs. Oh, what a night! Anybody seen her? And of course, let you get away. Yeah, yeah. That was a lot of fun, man. You know, the director was one of the all-time great directors in Hollywood, uh, Blake Edwards. Yeah. And you know, you know, just look him up, and, and it's like well, he did. I mean, we we know he did the Pink Panther series. He did another classic in the '80s with Ted Danson and um, Howard Mandel called "A Fine Mess." It's really funny too. But Blind Date is like we did a one song of the best. Fine Mess. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we did one song in that. Oh yeah. Yeah, he did Victor Victoria. Yeah. You know, I mean, just great. He's a great director. Oh, yeah. The cool thing about Man. Blake was. The, he, the movie Tamla, Dudley Moore. Yeah. Yeah. The, the great thing about Blake was he, he did, he hated traffic and he lived up in Malibu. Mm -hmm. So we never shot after 4 p.m. No. <laughs> <laughs> so during that, that scene that you're talking about, the, the nightclub brawl, mm -hmm. he, 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 was a, he was a tricky guy. Uh, and and he so he, he wanted to get a, a real natural reaction from me. Mm -hmm. So in the middle of the brawl, he sends two stunt women up to try to fight me. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I mean, I came up at a time in rock and roll when nightclubs were pretty rough places, mm -hmm. and there was brawls every night in some of those those awful clubs. And uh, you know, and I mean. I can't tell you how many times I picked up a microphone stand and swung it at people to keep them away from the bandstand. So, so that was the kind of reaction that I gave when those two stunt women attacked me. Well, accidentally, in, in, in the scuffle, uh, my leg uh, rubbed up against something sharp and, and it ripped my pants and cut my leg. Mm. So the, <laughs> the next day, this guy, Joe Dunn, who was the head stunt man, Mm -hmm. We've been with Blake Edwards for 20 years. You know, he, he keeps his whole crew is people that he's been with for that long. I mean, he's a very loyal man. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and Joe Dunn comes in with all the stunt guys and, and, and he brings all this, he brought in a stunt man's cap, a stunt man's t-shirt, a stunt man's badge, mm -hmm. all this stuff. And he said, he said, Billy, he said, after yesterday, he said, you are an official stunt man. You're one of us, boy. And I was so proud of that. I mean, that was like winning an Oscar, you know, to be accepted by these these tough guys. I mean, and these these stuntmen are really, you know, they're real tough, rough guys, and gals, you know. Uh, so that was that was to me that was a great honor. You know. Was there any more songs on the on the the shooting, or was it just those three songs that you performed? Those three. Originally, it was two. Uh -huh. And they needed another song for uh, the dancing, mm -hmm. uh, which was Anybody Seen Her. We wrote that specifically for the movie. Uh, me and a guy named L. Russell Brown, 
who was a great, great songwriter, friend of mine. He wrote Tie a Yellow Ribbon, uh, mm -hmm. Come On Marianne by the Four Seasons, Sock It To Me by Mitch Ryder, Knocked Three Times, a lot of great songs. So he and I wrote a song to the rhythm that those that the people were dancing to. And so that's that's how that got done. I got friendly with uh, with uh, Kim Basinger. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, she's very very shy girl. If there's more than two people in the room, she she, she just hardly talks at all. You know, unlike most actresses, you can't shut them up. But I, the first time we we talked was in the makeup trailer, and it was just me and her and the makeup girl. And um, boy, she just, once we got talking, she was like a little chatterbox, you know? And mm -hmm. so, uh, you know, she would call me up from time to time and we'd talk for like two hours on the phone. And, mm -hmm. uh, and she came to see the band a couple of times. And, and uh, in fact, she came about two years ago, right before COVID, she came to the club to see us. Mm -hmm. I hadn't seen her in many years. But you're a very nice girl. And of course, Bruce, I knew him before. Uh -huh. When the when he did that show, uh, Moonlighting, mm -hmm. I, I, I happened to see the first episode. And I, I, I looked at him. I said, boy, this guy, he's got it, man. You know, uh, he's going to be a star. I mean, I could just tell. Because at the time, most TV actors were pretty boys. And Bruce... He's a good looking guy, but he's not a pretty boy. You know, he, he's just a guy, you know, a guy like a, a real guy. And uh, so he comes in the club and, uh, and, and he came up to me, you know, actually in the middle of the set. <laughs> mm -hmm. And he starts talking to me. He said, he said man, I, I just wanted to tell you, he said, uh, Peter Weller uh, owned a bar in New York and I was his bartender. Oh, wow. He said, Peter bought 200 copies of your album. And he gave them to all his friends. And I got one. He said, I've been, I've been a fan of yours ever since I, before I came to New York. I said, wait, aren't you that guy that's just on that new show with Civil Shepherd? He said, yeah. I said, dude, I, I said, mark my words, you're going to break out of that show and be a big star, I promise. And uh, I was right, <laughs> of course. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, but he started coming to all our shows. And, and until, until the show got so big, that people started bothering him. They wouldn't leave him alone. And he, and he just couldn't come out in public anymore, poor guy. And then we ran into each other on blind date. And so we, it, was, it was like a reunion, you know? And uh, he, was, he was one of those celebrities that, that was a real guy. You know, he wasn't a jerk like so many of them are. Uh, and, uh, you know, he, he, you know he'd, he'd come hang out with us and, you know, and, uh, until he couldn't anymore, until, you know, the, the fans wouldn't let him. Did you ever have a chance to jam with him, with jam with Bruce Wolf? Because I know he has, like, he did music for a little bit. And he was uh, in, uh, actually, in there in Washington, there used to be uh, Planet Hollywood, and he came to the, to the grand opening of Planet Hollywood. A lot of big celebrities came that year, but yeah, he performed a few songs. I think even... I think even Don Johnson performed with him too. Yeah, they jammed together. Well, the first time, uh, actually the first time I met him, he told me he played harmonica. And I said, oh my God, he's not going to ask to play harmonica. And, uh, and, and of course, 
you know, I kind of felt sorry for him. So it, it wasn't that crowded that night. So I, I, I had him. And he actually plays pretty good harmonica, you know. Yeah. So, uh, you know, so every once in a while, we let him come up on stage and, and play harmonica with on a blues song or something like that, yeah. Let's, let's talk about your producing. You produced Lou Rawls. Was Lou Rawls the only album you produced? Or did you produce Ray Charles too? Uh, well, I produced Lou and, and Ray doing a duet together. Okay. Because I was listening to some of the songs you did with Lou Rawls, and there's a, a song, You Can't Go Home. I'm listening to the background vocals. And I say, is Billy behind him singing? So yeah. I was just wondering if you guys, I mean, it, the voices were so perfect. I was like, it's got to be Billy back there behind him. Is that yeah. the only song you've sung like background vocals for? Have you like secretly sang for somebody else? No, I'm not a background singer. Uh, that, that, that background is me, Lou, and George Benson singing. Okay, and you know he was the guest guitarist, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. George played guitar on it, played a wonderful solo on there. Yeah. And that, of course, I wrote that song. That's a, that's a great song. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Lou ended up doing seven of my songs. Oh, wow. Pretty cool. That one and uh, uh, If I Were a ma Magician, or uh, I think he did a wonderful performance on that one, too. And he did remove the view too, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That one, that one became as a result of uh, him doing that song. It became sort of a modern day blues standard. Yeah, uh, he didn't. He's not the first one that did it. A guy named Johnny Adams, a, a great singer out of New Orleans, mm -hmm. did it first. But I, I, I presented it to Lou because I thought it would be absolutely perfect for him. Mm -hmm. and of course, it was. Uh, you know, a great solo by uh, Cornell Dupree, the great guitar player. And uh, later on, Eric Burden did a version of it. And, uh, oh, nice. And a whole bunch of people you never heard of. <laughs> Maybe, you never know. I, we're pretty good with yeah, we, so. Lou had that really commanding voice, too. Lou Rawls, that you'll never find. That, like, yeah. That really commanding voice. <laughs> it's funny you mention that, because when he did If I Were a Magician, we had trouble with him on that. Uh, and then I realized... Um, I said, the songs that he excels on are songs where he's the winner in the relationship. You'll never find another love like mine, woman, you know? Or <laughs> the other song, uh, Your Good Thing is About to End, Woman, you know? But, but, but if I were a magician, required him to be vulnerable and take that losing ride, you know? If only I could have you back, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, he wasn't good at that. You know, he had too much of an ego for that. So what we did was after, at the end of the day, we, we went to dinner and we got him drunk. Oh. And then the next morning he had a terrible hangover. Mm. And so he got, he was vulnerable then, you know, and he, and he did a great job on it. But you had to do, you know, sometimes you, you gotta, you gotta figure out ways to make, to get the performance that you want out of your artist, mm -hmm. you know. That's how it worked with that song. You have so, so many hats. You have producer, singer, composer. You write books. Is there something that you haven't done yet that you want to achieve? Yeah, there's one thing, but it's too late for me at my age. Uh, my one regret is uh, when I was coming up, tap dancing was sort of out of style. And I, I've always loved the great tap dancers, Fred Astaire and 
Bill Bojangles, Robinson, the Nicholas Brothers, people like that. But I never bothered to learn tap dancing. I, I could dance pretty good when I was a kid. But, you know, nowadays I'm, I'm 77 years old, dude, you know, so my, my legs aren't as strong as they were. But I wish I, wish I had tap danced, you know, because I love it, man. You ever see, you ever see on, uh, it was Jimmy Cagney's birthday the other day. Oh, yeah. And on Facebook, whenever it's somebody's birthday that I like, I, I post a video of them. Mm. So I posted a, a video of Jimmy Cagney and Bob Hope uh, uh, tap dancing together. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you ever saw that one. It was at the, uh, the, uh, the Oscars, like later on in the Oscars when they were older or younger? It was at a, at a, a roast. Okay. Uh, or at least it was supposed to be at a roast. And they, they hop up on the bar and the two of them try to outdance each other. Oh, wow. And Cagney, who happened to be a great dancer. Yeah. Uh, and I, I wasn't expecting Hope to be that good. And, and, mm. uh, and Hope was really oh, yeah. a good dancer. I guess because he came up in, in, in a vaudeville. Yeah. You know, and so, uh, but he, he kept up with Jimmy Cagney, I'll tell you that. Yeah. I know they always show that classic scene in Yankee, Doodle, Yankee Doodle Dandy with Cagney. I know they've TNT oh. shows every so often on their Facebook. It's classic. Yeah. That, well, that was kind of, they were redoing that scene. Okay. And, and Cagney was doing that same dance in color now. Later. There's another one, too, where, where he comes down a, a staircase. You ever see that one? Mm-hmm. He dances as well. Oh, oh man. Yeah. He, he's, he's one of my favorites, Jimmy Cagney. Yeah. He, you know, he was a versatile actor. He was a versatile actor. Yeah, he was a gangster, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. There's, there's also that, I can't remember what movie it is, but I know there's a famous scene where he he smashes a grapefruit in the wife's face. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's yeah. probably his most famous scene of all. Yeah. Oh yeah. And and of course he does he does some great death scenes, you know, where the the FBI shoots him to death. Top of the world, mama. Isn't that the famous oh, line? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, he's yeah. so good, man. When you went to go preserve all of the classic uh, artists like Little Richard and and Coasters and all those um, is there anything else in the archives that you want to preserve? Because oh. like those tapes are deteriorating, just like movies, and we need to preserve everything, you know, before they're all forgotten. Yeah, you know, I've done a couple of hundred uh, reissue CDs over the years, and um, I, I, I've done. If I haven't done the ones that I wanted to do, somebody else has. You know, like. I, I did a great one on Duke Ellington. I'm a big Duke Ellington fan. Mm-hmm. And I'm a big Count Basie fan. Mm-hmm. And I did, for each of their 100th birthdays, I, I, I did CDs for them. So I got to do that. Uh, I never did any Louis Armstrong. Mm-hmm. But he's, he's been pretty well covered, you know, because he's one of the greatest artists of the century, the 20th century. So... I don't think there's anything that hasn't been reissued on him. And the same with Billie Holiday and, and some of those. But of all the rockers, you know, uh, they've been done. I, I got to do Little Richard, mm-hmm. you know, all of his, his stuff. Uh, and yeah, yeah, I mean, there's, there's not a lot left. There was, there was one that I was dying to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard of Billy Stewart. 
he did that great version of Summertime, Up Tempo. Oh, yeah. Chuck, 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 summertime, you know. Yeah. And, uh, and, and that album, uh, I was working in a black record store mm -hmm. in White Plains, New York, called the Boss Record Shop when that album came out. And it was a little tiny store. And, uh, you know, all my customers were black. And the owner was black. And, and here's this little white kid who loved black music, you know, working in this store. And I was alone there one day and the distributor comes in and he said, kid, put this album on the, on the turntable. Because in those days you'd play the records for your customers. Mm -hmm. So the first song that came on was Summertime by Billy Stewart. I said, oh my God. And I had about, I think I had three or four customers in there at the time. And they started gravitating towards the turntable. Mm -hmm. And they started reaching in their pocket for their money. I mean, it was like, oh my God. And, and, and so the distributor gets this, this evil grin on his face, you know, and he says, uh, he says, so how many you want? So I knew that this was going to be a big seller. I said, and I, I took a chance that my boss wouldn't get mad. I said, give me 25. And you know what? By the next morning, I sold all 25 of them. Mm. And I mean, just, and I, so I ordered a hundred more and I sold all those. I mean, the, the, the album went crazy. And I think every black family in White Plains had that album eventually, because it was just one of the, it was, it was everything. It was soul, it was jazz. You had, it was a unique singer. Uh, like, he sounded like nobody else. Great, so, great old standard songs like Summertime and, and uh, Foggy Day and all those. And, uh, and for years I wanted to put that album out again. And my friend, my friend was in charge of, uh, of the catalog at uh, Universal, which owned Chess Records by this time. And I used to go, Andy, I said, man, come on, man, let me put out that Summertime album by Billy Stewart. I said, I said, black people of a certain age are gonna, they're gonna remember that album, they're gonna want it. He said, ah, man, he always had an excuse. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, years went by, 20 years went by and I kept bugging him all the time because I, I just knew this album had to come out on CD because it was well recorded and it, you know. And finally about, oh, I don't know, about three three years ago, I got somebody to let me put it out. And uh, it was like, finally, man. It was like, you know, one of my goals, you know, that, you know how you, there's something that you just, you feel the world needs to have out, you know? And, and I, but I, I get very passionate about things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, important music. I don't want it to die. And, uh, and, and so I feel good about that. There's a station I listen to all the time called Kixie up here in Seattle. It's like one of the best. You know, my, my dad used to hear it all the time on AM and it was like, and then you put it on the computer or you're on digital. Now it's like so sharp and everything sounds like brand new. It's just, yeah. they hear all the classics all like crystal clear. Yeah. Speaking of which, uh, I heard you have a new album coming out. You want to tell us about that? It's been, yeah, it's been out. It, unfortunately, <laughs> no. uh, it came out just as COVID hit. Mm. And uh, so I, I put it out uh, on CD Baby. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and their, their uh, warehouse was closed down because mm -hmm. of COVID. So I, I, I had a couple of radio stations were playing it, man, you know. Uh, back east and, and, and the jazz stations in New York were playing it and the 
you know, the jazz station here was playing it. I mean, it was just like, I got a, I got a shot, you know? And it, it's, what, I, what it was is, I, I haven't written songs in a long time, but I, I went through some old things that I had laying around. And I found 10 really great songs mm -hmm. that had never been recorded by me or anybody else. Well, one of them Lou had recorded called Moon Glows. Mm -hmm. And um, I said, I just said, you know, these, these songs deserve to be documented. And uh, so I got the best musicians I could find in LA and I got a good little studio and, you know, everybody was nice enough to do me favors and re record for me at a reduced fee. Mm -hmm. And uh, we went in and, and did the album just never thinking it was going to make money, but I just felt that, that, you know, I'm the kind of guy that, that, certain things deserve to be out there available. And I felt that these songs did and do. And so it came out, I, uh, I, I said, you know, because when Chip was teaching me how to write songs, Chip Taylor, mm -hmm. he said, one of the most important things he ever told me was, he said, don't just try to write trendy songs for the moment. He said, try to write songs that you can picture people singing 20 years from now. He said, that's number one, where you make your money in the long run. And, and that's where you have a chance of writing a classic. So I, I've always tried to do that. I mean, occasionally I'll write just some funny thing or, you know, fun thing that is for the moment. But generally speaking, I try to write songs that, that will last. And these were all songs that I felt that way about. And so I named the album Timeless, Billy Vera, Timeless, because the songs were timeless. And, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm proud of the album. And the, the playing on it is really terrific and the sound is good. And I, I, in fact, I had, the engineers were great. I mean, the, 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 the mixing engineer was, was a guy that died shortly after, but he's one of the most famous guys. And same with the mastering engineer, Ron McMaster, mm -hmm. who's, who's done all the Blue Note jazz reissues and you know for Capitol records over the years and that's how i became friends with him and he, he again these guys gave me bro what we call bro deals you know which means they didn't charge me what they would charge a normal person so yeah, yeah i mean I, I like the album a lot and i'm i'm kind of kind of hurts me that that it came out at such an inopportune time you know but it's there if anybody wants to take a listen to it. And it's on cdbaby.com or is it on your, or your website as well? No, no, not my website. It's CD Baby or, or Amazon. I, 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 I'd rather people go to CD Baby to get it because, okay. you know, Amazon takes a cut. So I get a couple <laughs> more bucks if, if you go directly to CD Baby. What else lies ahead for Billy? Are you, you going to tour the tour all over or? Well, you know, with a band our size, mm -hmm. uh, it's fiscally impossible to tour. You know, uh, touring is, is okay if you've got a four-piece band of 22-year-old guys and, you know, they're willing to drive in a van together and sleep in the same hotel room together. But, you know, I, the guys in my band are all professionals, so each guy has to have his own room. You know, uh, it's very expensive. And, and 
I, I, I'm not a big enough name that I can command uh, the kind of fees that would pay for a band that size. So I, I don't there's, a, there's a lot of R and B and jazz clubs out here. I'm pretty sure they'd love to have you, especially in Seattle. Yeah, we played when the record was hot. When at this oh. moment was hot. Yeah, we played Seattle, played Vancouver up there. Yeah, Portland. I think we. Played. I mean, it's got, the clubs have gotten bigger. There's more clubs. I'm I'm insane. I know there's probably a handful who just want to grab you. <laughs> I'm sure they'd love to have us, and I'm sure we do a great job. The problem is I'd lose money. You know, I, I just not only wouldn't make money, I, I would lose money by the time I paid everybody. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm stuck playing within driving business of L, uh, dri- driving distance of L.A. Yeah. What we got to do. But, no tour bus, right? <laughs> no, 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 I don't think so, sadly. Yeah. Even when the record was hot, you know, people don't understand that even with a number one record, you know, you're, you're, what you're offered is an opening slot for a big star. Yeah. Uh, and at, for lousy money. So it was rare, even with a number one record, that we made enough money to break even. Mm-hmm. So there was that, you know, you know, after, if, if we'd had, an, you know, two more top 10 records in a row, mm-hmm. then our price would have gone up. And then we would have been able to, you know, the, the country would have been able to see how great a band the beaters were. Yeah. And, and I, 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 it may sound like I'm bragging, but I think that the beaters were one of the best bands around. Yeah. That's why I, I was kind of sad that I missed it because I was too young to hit the clubs. <laughs> I was, yeah. I was underage. <laughs> I would have loved to come see the Beaters. Yeah, you would have loved it. I think you would have loved it. Yeah, my brother was just a little kid, so he couldn't definitely <laughs> come in the club. You know, most clubs, if they serve food, yeah, uh, that, that you know an adult can bring you in. Mm-hmm. But you got to you got to find an adult willing to do that. Yeah. That's Too late now. Yeah. Did you want to ask another question, David? You were going to ask about, uh, I really got the feeling, I think you wanted yeah. to ask about that, didn't you? Yeah, why don't you tell us uh, a little bit about that, about that song? Well, in the 70s, you know, after, after having some hits in the 60s with Judy Clay, and I had a solo hit as well, you know, the culture changed, the music changed, and uh, I, I couldn't figure out how to fit in with things as they were. And uh, so I... I, I was sort of reduced to working what I call survival gigs. And uh, one such gig <laughs> was at a Ramada Inn where you play two weeks, you know, five, six nights a week out in New Jersey of all places. Mm-hmm. Nothing wrong with New Jersey. But uh, and what happens in a gig like that is you, you get a crowd on the weekends, but during the week you're playing to like three or four businessmen who hate you because the waitresses are talking to you instead of them. So this one Tuesday night, the waitress comes over to me at the end of the set and she says, that fellow over there with his wife would like a word with you. So I go over to him and he stands up. He says, uh, I'm L. Russell Brown. I wrote Tie a Yellow Ribbon Around the Old Oak Tree. I said, oh, thank you. That's nice. Very nice for you. He says, you know, Vera, he says, uh, 
you're one of the great singers. You know, you're a great songwriter. Everybody in the business knows how great you are. He said, but, but you never make any money. <laughs> mm -hmm. you know? he, says, he says, me, I make a lot of money and nobody respects me. He said, I, I was thinking as I was listening to you up there, I said, maybe if you and I wrote together, I might be able to teach you how to make money writing songs and you might be able to and I, teach me how to get respect. I said, boy, that sounds like a good idea to me. And so I started going over to his house, you know, in the afternoons. And uh, he was a very energetic guy, you know, we, and so we wrote a lot of songs, not all good, but we wrote, we wrote a lot of songs. But one day, like everybody that does one thing well, he wanted to try his hand at producing. And he got a gig producing Nancy Sinatra, who hadn't had a hit in a few years. But she was still, she had a name, she was Nancy Sinatra. And so he said, listen, I, I, I'm recording Nancy next week and I need one more song for her. He said, he said I gotta go pick up my wife at the beauty parlor. He said, uh, he said, start something, see if you can start something for her while I'm gone and we'll finish it when I get back. Okay. So I said, what the hell do you write for Nancy Sinatra? <laughs> you know, and I said, oh, she has this famous father. Um, so I had lines in there like, I love my daddy, but it really don't matter what my daddy might say, meaning, <laughs> you know. And, uh, and so by the time he got back to the house, I had finished the song. And I played it for him, and he loved it. He just loved the song. He said, oh, my God. He said, really, this is a number one song if I ever heard one. And Larry had really good ears for what, what was going to be a hit, you know. So you, if he said something like that, I'd listen to him. He said, so he plays it for Nancy, and she hated it. <laughs> she didn't like the song. Mm -hmm. So he said, he, he called me, he said, Billy, you got to do something with this song. He said, uh, I'm telling you, this, this is, song is too good to waste. So I, that, that got me enthusiastic about it, you know, and I, and I had a friend, piano player named Crazy Joe, Renda, and he had a little country band up in Connecticut, and he had a girl singer, and she had a good voice. So we recorded her singing the song, but she was lazy and she didn't really learn it properly. And everywhere we went with the little, with the record, the tape, mm -hmm. they'd listen to it and they say, boy, a great song, but I hate that girl. <laughs> Love the song, hate the girl. You know, I got that everywhere. Finally, I'm at the last guy on my list, the very last guy. He says, love the song, hate the girl, but we're recording Dolly Parton next week. Give me the song for Dolly. Well, I didn't trust this guy. That's why he was the last guy on my list. Mm -hmm. I said, I said, uh, Charlie, I, I tell you what, put it in writing and give me some money. I figured he'd give me a couple of hundred bucks, you know. Mm -hmm. Gives me a check for $2,500, which was wow. a fortune in 1978. You know, I mean, it's like, that's like $7,000 today, you know. Mm -hmm. So I said, I guess he's serious. You know, I guess he means it. So he records it with Dolly. And the record comes out, the album comes out. And he, he had promised me it would be the single and put it in writing. So in the interim, I get this offer to come to California and write songs for Warner Brothers. 
and I, I figured I had, I had uh, done my time in New York and, and it was time to move somewhere else and take a chance somewhere else. So I'm driving out to California with everything I own in my car. And every 20 minutes on the country stations, I was taking the Southern route, you know, route 10. Mm-hmm. And every 20 minutes they're playing my song, my Dolly Parton song. Wow. My God, my God, I'm back in show business again. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, the day I hit LA, it hit number one on the country charts. And I said, wow, this is an omen. I'm going to, I'm going to do well out here. You know? mm-hmm. and, and of course I got to meet Dolly and, and she was maybe the nicest person I ever met in show business. She's just a, a genuine down home girl, you know, um, and uh, I just was thrilled that you can imagine. I, I mean, not having a hit for nine years, mm-hmm. and then suddenly you're making a comeback. It was just, it was just. I was so grateful. I was so happy. You know. Mm-hmm. So, thank you, Nancy Sinatra, for turning down my song. <laughs> Do you think if you hit, if you had hit Nashville for a little bit, you could have? got more hits if you would have wrote like at this moment for somebody? I don't know. You know, after, after I did at this moment, there was a mm-hmm. singer, what was his name? Neil, Neil, somebody who was a mm-hmm. popular country singer. He did a version of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I mean, it was that kind of song that, 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 that fit in different formats. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember we did a, or I, I did, my band didn't do it. Uh, we did a tribute to James Brown, um, and 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 all of us had to sing a song, a James Brown song, with James Brown's band. It was me, Wilson Pickett, Aretha Franklin, uh, Robert Palmer, Joe Cocker, and me. And we each of us had to sing a, a James Brown song with his band. And and we had to go to Detroit because Aretha was afraid to fly. Yeah, she lived in Detroit. So I get there, we, we had the rehearsal in the afternoon. It was for cable TV. And, uh, and Aretha's sister, Irma Franklin, who was the original singer on, uh, on uh, Peace of My Heart that Janis Joplin later recorded. Mm-hmm. So Irma comes over to me, we start talking and she said, she said, oh man, Billy, you know, she knew me from back in the Judy Clay days, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, and she said, your, your record is so just going crazy up here in Detroit. She said, it's on the pop stations. It's on the rhythm and blues stations. It's on the country stations. It's on, I mean, it's, it's just one of those rare songs that crosses over to every single market, every age group. Mm-hmm. I mean, we had, when that record was out, man, we had 65-year-old couples loving that song. We had junior high school kids making it their, their prom song. I mean, it was just remarkable uh, how broad the audience for at this moment was it it's it's rare you know because today everything is so narrow uh you know you have you have stations that are dedicated to one singer you know? yeah serious you know so anyway so when we did that uh you know, I, I got to meet Aretha for the first time, who was a hero of mine as well. Uh, Irma said, Aretha wants to meet you. 
So we I, we go over. She was sitting in a booth with a couple of people, and and, and the first thing Aretha says to me, she says, "Well, if it isn't Mr. Storybook Children." <laughs> Storybook Children was the song I made with Judy Clay back in 1968. I said, "Wow, you remember that song?" She said, "Yeah, baby." She said, "That was one of my favorites." She said, "That was that was huge in Detroit." I said, "Wow." You, you know, when you idolize somebody like an Aretha Franklin or a Fat Domino, for that matter, you never think that that they would have any idea who you are, because mm. you you put them up on this pedestal, and and uh, and, and if they even know your name, you know, much less yeah. what you do, it's it's like it's it's like hard to believe, you know, for a for a minute there, and, and it's also thrilling, yeah, too. You know that Wiltern Theater show I told you about? Mm -hmm. About 25 years after that show, this woman friends me on Facebook and she tells me that she produced that show. Oh, wow. And she said, you know, you know, you went over so great that night. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we, we filmed uh, your performance. I said, really? I said, wow, cool. She said, yeah, I'll send you a copy of it. And then she, then she proceeded to say, to tell me, she said, you know, I, I used to be one of Frank Sinatra's girlfriends. What? He'd come over to my house and see me. And mm. She says, one night he comes over to, to see me and I, I played him that tape of you singing at this moment. Mm. And, he, and he listened and he, he said, play it again. Played it for him again. He said, play it again, third time. He said, my God, he said, who is this kid? How come he's not the biggest star in the world? Frank Sinatra, my God, saying this about a little old me? Yeah. And she said every time he came to see her, he, he would demand that she play him that tape. I said, I'm, I'm surprised that he didn't ask you to come join his duet CD. Oh, my God, yeah. It would have, it would have been awesome to hear Billy and Sinatra sing together. Oh, my God, right? Yeah. 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 Cause I mean, when, when my mother was singing, you know, and she, she was, my mother had good taste mm -hmm. at, and she'd bring home great albums of the kind of music that she liked, you know, mm -hmm. Sinatra's songs for young lovers, songs for swinging lovers, you know, mm -hmm. I listened to those as much as I listened to the rock and roll stuff of my generation. Mm -hmm. Nancy Wilson was a big favorite of hers. Uh, Nat King Cole, you know, she, she had really hip, Ears, as we used to say. So yeah, I, 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 before I, before that, years before that, I had met uh, Sinatra's best friend, uh, Jilly Rizzo. That's his name. He had a, a club in New York called Jilly's, and uh, and Jilly was a tough, you know, New York tough guy, you know. And. Uh, he came, actually, he, he came to the recording session when I did my first solo hit with Pen in Hand. And he told, he was friends with my manager at the time. And he said, he said, this, this kid, he said, he's the only guy I heard that phrases almost, almost as good as Frank. <laughs> you know? And he said, and, and, and so, you know, I, I got to know Will, uh, Jilly pretty good. And then in later years, you know, 20 years later, when At This Moment was hot, we played in, we had a gig in Palm Springs where 
Frank li had lived and where Jilly lived mm -hmm. near Frank. So uh, I'm playing this real big club there. And uh, there's a knock on the dressing room door. And, it, and there was this huge guy, you know, crooked nose, you know, it looked like a real mafia guy. Mm -hmm. and, he, and he's got an armful of, an armful of like two dozen roses <laughs> for me. He said, hey, uh, he said uh, Jilly, Jilly sent these here for you. He said he wants you to have these. He said he, he says he still loves you, but he's homesick in bed and he can't come and see you. Mm. He said, but he said to tell you, be sure to tell you, but still Frank's the only one that can outphrase you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> mm. like wow, you know. I mean, why couldn't I have met Sinat the great Sinatra, yeah. man? You know, and maybe he would have said something nice to me you know, himself. Which he would probably say, write me, a, write me a song like that, like at this moment, probably. You know, I, I, the thing that surprised me that, that he liked the song mm -hmm. because he was a stickler for good grammar. Mm -hmm. And there's that one line in there when, where I say, you don't love me no more. Mm -hmm. Terrible grammar. Mm -hmm. But it, it wouldn't have worked if I had said, because you don't love me anymore. If yeah. you would, it just would have sounded stupid. You know, so sometimes you have to use bad grammar in a song to make it work. And, uh, but apparently he liked the song in spite of that. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. And then of course we got to do Carson, as you mentioned before. We did, yeah. we did Johnny Carson nine times. Wow, nine times. Nine times. Only, there's only like three or four sh shows on YouTube. So I was like, oh, it was only on a couple times. Were you, hey, were you, uh, Ever with Judy on um, Sullivan? Sad to say, no. No. Uh, you know there was there was the racial factor. Mm -hmm. I think it, it, even even though that was the hippie days when everybody was peace and love and all that, but we were of a different generation. You know, we didn't wear the bell-bottom trousers and the, the mm -hmm. fringe and the hippie stuff. You know, Judy wore gowns like the old-fashioned gown I wore you know, a mohair suit, you know, with a, sometimes with a tie. And, and uh, so we, we were sort of on the, on the edge of the past uh, and, and things were changing rather rapidly. And I don't think that Sullivan was ready yet for a racially mixed duo singing love songs. Mm -hmm. uh, I think Ed would have done it, but I don't yeah. think the network was ready. Network probably. Yeah, because eventually, uh, you know, Tina Turner and, and Sammy Davis Jr. sang one of our songs, mm -hmm. duet on television. Excuse me. And even when I sang, when I had a hit with, with Pen in Hand, uh, they didn't ask me to be on there. And, and a year later, or two years later, Vicki Carr sang, recorded the same song and she got to be on Ed Sullivan. And uh, so I, you know, that, that kind of hurt, you know? Yeah. Uh, that, that was a top show at the time for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. The yeah. legendary show. Yeah. It was, it was it, man, yeah, to be on Sullivan. Yeah, like before, Car that, before Carson was Sullivan. Carson wasn't bad. Yeah. And, uh, and in fact, you know, I, I, I later became friends with uh, one of the guys that wrote Carson's monologues. Mm -hmm. the opening monologue mm -hmm. 
and and also uh, some of the crew guys. I got to know them, and they all told me. They said you were you were Johnny's second favorite singer after Tony Bennett. They said he loved you. In fact, when they had their 30th anniversary of the show, he we we were hired to play at the anniversary party for the Tonight Show. So, you know, that was, that's nice, you know, nice to. Well, watching the video, I think the first sign that he, he really loved you is that he got, he got you over to the couch. Barely anybody gets to the couch unless he really likes you. And he didn't like singers. Huh? My, my agent's, my agent's uh, father managed Doc Severinsen for 20 years. Uh, so he was part of the family over there at the Tonight Show. Mm -hmm. And he told me, he said, uh, you know, the first time I didn't do couch. Uh -huh. uh, but the second time, Danny, my agent said, uh, he said, you know, you're, you're going to do couch tonight. He said, uh, he said, this is really a big deal. He said, because mm -hmm. Johnny thinks that singers are mostly idiots that can't talk. No, <laughs> so but you fooled him though. Singers on the couch. Yeah, you you fooled him. You he was asking about like I heard that uh, you started the band to pick up girls, and then you said yeah, and then you started talking to Victoria Prince. I think Victoria Principal was sitting right next to you. You started <laughs> flirting with her. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Unfortunately, I didn't get to go out with her. Uh, I, I was too shy to ask her out. You know. I was okay flirting with her on camera, but yeah. but off the off camera, I was too shy. Wow. That's that's been the story of my life, you know. I, mm. I, I I because I think it's because I was a singer, mm. and and you know when you come off stage, girls talk to you. Yeah. And so I never learned the skills that that a normal guy would have to learn. Mm. You know, like I can't go to the supermarket and say, "Hey, you're buying Scott tissue or Kleenex there." <laughs> you know, I mean. I, 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 I couldn't do that with in a straight face, you know, mm. where, where a normal guy learns how to do that. You know, hey, you want tomatoes there or you want the red peppers or yellow peppers? You know, I mean, I, I would feel like an idiot doing that, you know. So I, I, I don't think I ever went out with a girl that didn't talk to me first or, or I wasn't introduced to properly mm. in my whole life. You know, I, 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 and how many how many girls did I miss, you know, because I was too terrified to make the first move <laughs> that might've gone out with me, you know? Oh, what the heck? Well, who knows? Maybe you could have got Kim Basinger too. Since she was a chitter chatter, she was probably really into you. <laughs> well, you know, you know, the funny thing is uh -huh. looking back on it, I think she yeah. was because one time yeah. she came backstage mm -hmm. And she and she whispers in my ear, uh -huh. and she says, "You know, everybody thinks that we're sleeping together." And I'm like, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa! How do I answer that?" <laughs> this, this is this is Kim Basinger, a goddess that walks the face of the earth. And how do I how do I answer something like that? And, and Only you had seen Batman before. Yeah, dude. Batman you know before that. <laughs> Just said, uh, you should have said, let's make the rumors true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If only I were that cool, you know. And another one was Michelle Pfeiffer. Uh -huh. You know, uh, Jeff Goldblum from Buckaroo Banzai. We we were pretty friendly on this mm -hmm. on this set. So he was making his next movie was with her. Uh 
Mm-hmm. So, so he comes to the club one night with her. And he said, he said, uh, he came backstage and he says, you know, Michelle wants to meet you. And, I, I, and that's how I got her to come to the show. Mm-hmm. Really? Wow. And, and, and so he brings her backstage, you know, beautiful Michelle Pfeiffer. And I'm like, ah, 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 ah. I'm like yeah. Jackie Gleason, you know, I'm an, I'm an. <laughs> you know, making an utter fool of myself. And of course that, that went nowhere. And, uh, you know, that's not to say that, that, that I didn't get lucky with a few couple of big names who I yeah. won't mention, but, uh, yeah, but, but generally it was like, if, if it was up to me to make the first one, I always said, if I wasn't a singer, I'd probably still be a virgin. No. <laughs> you know? Yeah, you're saying about, I was going to say, you brought up Jeff Goblin, and uh, I don't know if you saw that uh, sometimes in his off time of not doing movies, he's been touring and doing jazz stuff too. Like, maybe that you could, uh, maybe if he was at a, at a city that was, or you were, you know, you guys could like link up and maybe you could be part of one of his shows or something. I went to see uh, one of his shows here in town. and uh, Oh, good. And I spoke with him and, you know, it was, you know, like got to re- re-know each other. Uh, yeah, he was good. He was really good. Uh, his, his, what, he, what he does on stage is excellent. You know, another one that's really good is Pesci. I mean, Pesci sings his ass off. Yeah. Uh, he is really a good singer. He he doesn't like to go out and do it in front of people much, but he but yeah. he's, he's really good. You guys have a a, a favorite in common, right? Uh, just recently passed. That was that was him, Jimmy Scott. Jimmy Scott. Yeah, yeah Jimmy. Yeah, and and you know Pesci sounds a lot like Jimmy Scott. Mm-hmm. He he and Frankie Valley grew up in Newark, New Jersey. And Jimmy lived in in, uh, in Newark for many years, and he used to play all these, you know, terrible, low end black clubs. Mm-hmm. And Frankie and uh, and and Pesci, they they said when they were kids, they they'd go see him. And of course, you know, Pesci got his whole singing style from Jimmy Scott, and and Frankie, you know, got a little of his singing style from Jimmy too. He told me that. But I knew I got to know Jimmy really well. We were very close, and he was just a sweetheart. He was he was old school show business, you know. I mean, he he was one of these guys that sort of saw it like a lot of the old timers. He saw it as his duty, his obligation to to help young singers learn the ropes of how to perform, how to you know something as simple as how to enter a stage, how to exit a stage, you know, things you never think of, you know, how to behave yourself with regard to other performers. You know, you don't do somebody's song when they're on the same show as you, you know, I mean, just simple stuff that, that, that a lot of young people don't think of, young performers don't think of. And, uh, and he, was, he was great like that. He was just a wonderful little guy. Yeah, uh, there's a video that David showed me on YouTube where Joe was singing with Jimmy as a duet, I think on one of his final albums. And Joe was just sitting there and he was just getting so astonished. I don't think he could even sing the duet. He was just like in tears, just like so emotional, just hearing Jimmy sing. Oh, yeah. It was, yeah. Effort, it was effortless for Jimmy. Jimmy was just singing like nothing. 
It's like one of those voices that's just effortless. Yeah, Jimmy, Jimmy was great like that. And, and of course, you know, unfortunately, Jimmy was an acquired taste, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, everybody didn't get him. Uh, he was too hip, you know. <laughs> he was just too hip. And, and of course, Pesci just worshipped him. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I loved Jimmy, too, you know. Uh, I, I was turned on to him as a very young fellow. Uh, and uh, you know, I, my dream was toward the end of his life to I wanted to produce him, mm -hmm. you know. But uh, the record company they wanted somebody else to, that was more connected to the company mm -hmm. to do him. But I, I, I felt I could make a could have made a great record with Jimmy, you know, uh, picking the right songs for him. You know, it, it's it's all casting, yeah. You know, like you're casting a movie, uh, you you. you, you you pick the right musicians for that job. You know, I, there's, there's great over here and there's great over here. You don't hire George Benson if you want B.B. King, two great guitar players, right? But George does his thing, B.B. does his thing. And you don't, you don't hire George and try to ask him to play like B.B. Mm. and vice versa. So it's, it's, it's all in the casting. You, know, you don't hire um, Rosie O'Donnell for the Michelle Pfeiffer role. Yeah, <laughs> and that and that's what that's a simple thing that that, mm -hmm. that most people that produce records don't 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 really understand. They, I mean, not, most lousy producers don't understand. Yeah, you got to pick the the song that's that's that fits the the, the singer's range. You know, mm -hmm. uh, the kind of subject matter that, 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 that they excel at, mm -hmm. you, know, uh, you know, you don't hire, uh, you don't hire a Jimmy Scott and ask him to sing political songs. Yeah. <laughs> that kind of stuff. So. Cool. Well, it's been a great pleasure for you to be on our show, uh, Billy. Well, thank you for We'd having me. love to have you on again. Yeah. Anytime. Tell us some more stories about, about movies and music. Yeah, you got my email. Just let me know. All right. All right. Well, this has been Patrick and David with the one and only Billy Vera on the Mad Bros Media Zoom show and podcast. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye. Wow. What a great guy. And so much I learned about Billy and the musicians and people he knows and worked with. I want to thank Billy Vera and again you, the listeners, who check out our podcast. Stay tuned in November when Mad Bros Media Zoom returns, along with Backtrack and Kevin's Kids. Till then, this has been Patrick with the Mad Bros Media Zoom Show and Podcast. <laughs>